are you? Good. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us online. I'm really grateful to be with you. We are continuing our summer series where we have focused our attention on God and his attributes that we see highlighted in the book of Psalms. You know, we are in this unprecedented season. For many of us, that has meant some significant change, some personally, some professionally, socially. And despite what is changing for many of us, um, God is the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our hope and our prayer for this series has been whatever circumstances you are walking through, whatever circumstances we are all facing, that we would shift our focus on God, who is unchanging, a solid place for us to land. It says in Psalm 61, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you, I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Our prayer for this series has been just that. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Today, we are looking at one of my all-time favorite passages of scripture. Um, It's lucky me, I chose it, Psalm 23. There was a season in my life a couple years ago, a really hard season, um, in the midst of an infertility journey that we were walking through. I've shared some of that with you all here before. Um, But it was in that tender time when I spent the better part of a year reading Psalm 23 every day. I memorized it. I recited it. I rewrote it in my own words, read it as slowly as I could. (laughs) I broke it down to the studs. I found refuge in it. God ministered to me powerfully through it. Because in that time, in many ways, I felt lost. Now, I never abandoned my faith, um, but I felt pretty upside down, pretty tossed about, in need of God and his shepherding care in my life tangibly. Now, I don't know how you all come into this today, how tossed about uh, you might feel how much you desire to be shepherded, or maybe how willing you are to be shepherded. Maybe if you're honest, you'd rather take a pass on that part. Maybe you would rather be in control. Jesus take the wheel um, is something that I say a lot. I mean, it is a joke sometimes when things are crazy, just Jesus take the wheel, you know. But I do sincerely desire for Jesus, the Lord of my life, to guide and direct my steps. I do. However, I also enjoy the control part. (laughs) Turns out it's pretty hard to live Jesus take the wheel uh, when you're a backseat driver, you know? Yes, I am a backseat driver. In my everyday life, this is true. My husband would testify to this fact. If he were here, it's not my favorite quality about myself. Um, But I am also afflicted with the gift for directions, okay? I am for remembering where we parked the car, you know? Um, For knowing the ancient Colorado truth, the mountains are always west, right? Some of you know this. Yeah, the mountains are always west. I know the most efficient route from A to B, and my husband, let's just say, it's not his gift, you know? But if I take this metaphor, if I continue this metaphor, I am a far worse backseat driver to God. Turns out, um, I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of suggestions 
I have some pointers for him. It's not always easy for me to be shepherded. Culturally, we're living in a time when we do what we want to do, right? I am in charge. You can't tell me otherwise. It is common advice to hear, follow your heart. Do whatever makes you happy. Happiness is the name of the game. We are living in a hyper-individual culture, like a me-centric world. So how does God, our shepherd, find us in the midst of that? And what can we learn of him and his heart through Psalm 23? I have so many thoughts. Strap in. Just kidding. For us to gain some helpful understanding of Psalm 23, I think it's good of us to get some background. Um, We know that it was written by David. Now, we've talked a lot about David in the last few weeks. We've looked at his layers of emotional honesty before God, despite hardship and betrayal. Today, we come back to him. Now, we don't know the specifics of what was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm, but we do know that it was likely written at the end of his life. Now, a picture of David, if you're not familiar with David, he was a very influential figure in the Old Testament. He's this shepherd boy turned king, famous for bravery and faith in the David and Goliath account, Um, for being a musician and a poet. He wrote many of the Psalms. He was a good king of Israel, obedient to God. He's described as a man after God's own heart. And yet, he was a man who failed pretty hard, too. Um, He took a woman who was married for himself. Uh, He had her husband killed. It's not a good look. He had his fair share of difficulty as as well as powerful victory in his story. All of that history he brings to the table here. At its core, this whole psalm is an expression of confidence in God, a declaration of the protective care of God and total dependence on him. This psalm is visual, right? high drama and imagery. It is beautiful. And we see a couple of themes here, but the primary visual theme is the shepherd, the shepherd heart of God. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with a shepherd today. Maybe if you're an average American, maybe you have images of Bo Peep. Uh, maybe you're thinking of some felt board shepherds, maybe. But they were often teenagers, The job itself was not glamorous. It was hard, and it was dirty. It is not a job that people are aspiring to have. But it was pretty commonplace. At this time, everyone understood that the shepherd was a person who kept the sheep alive, led them to food, protected them from danger. The shepherd was a sole caretaker for sheep. And it was a common connotation for a king. A king was a shepherd to the people he ruled over. It was a powerful symbol in Israel's history. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. And David was a shepherd. So if you're following along, we'll be in Psalm 23, kicking off just first one. The Lord is my shepherd. The first point in your outline, if you are taking notes on our app or if you're just taking notes generally, is he's a personal shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. David doesn't say our shepherd is what would have been expected. He uses the word mine, my shepherd. The use of this personally uh, was significant, first person singular, highlighting the shepherd's care 
for the one. There's an intimate force here. It's personal. How and where have you seen or experienced God's care for you personally? Maybe you quickly think of places that God has been a good caretaker to you. Like we could just pass the mic around. Let's take the mic, we'll pass it. Some of you are starting to sweat. Um, I'm not going to actually do that, don't worry, right? Welcome to church, here's the mic. But if we were to pass that around to here, where has God cared for you personally, it would probably be a really good use of our time. Powerful to hear. It is one thing to say, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. This is true. This is powerful and tethering for us. But God's love and care is personal and intimate as well. He loves you and cares for you personally. If you're here and you're not sure about that, not sure if it's actually true for you, if you can't see big ways or little ways that God has shown himself to care for you personally, you might not have to look that far. You may need to ask God to reveal it to you, to reveal the places and spaces that he's actually cared for you and you just didn't see it. I want to encourage you, I want to dare you to pray for a new perspective, if that's you. He cares for you personally. Another place we see this in scripture is in Luke 15. There's a series of parables about the lost being found and the sheer delight and celebrating that happens over the one that's been found. It's the prodigal son, the lost coin, and the lost sheep. It says this in Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Again, we have a picture of a personal shepherd. He leaves the 99 for the one. It sounds funny. Um, I have logistical questions about the math of this. It doesn't make logistical sense to me. But the heart of God doesn't make logistical sense. He's for you, the one. A kind of overwhelming to receive, big, wild love. Now, going back to some basic understanding of the qualities of a shepherd. A shepherd tends to the needs of his sheep. He leads them when they don't know which way to go. He physically carries them when they can't carry on. He stands with them and up for them when they're in danger. He protects them and he keeps them close to him. The nature of sheep, you know, they're not so smart. <laughs> sheep go astray. They need guidance. They are vulnerable. They are also valuable, and they are honest. They are lost and afraid. They can't fake it, literally. They shiver in fear, waiting to be rescued. If they feel unsafe, they get closer to each other. They also willingly follow. How much do you resonate with a sheep? <laughs> How easy or hard is it for you to call out to God for help? To ask 
for guidance, to be honest when you're afraid, to run to others when you're in danger? Do you feel like you are willing to follow your shepherd's lead? Is it easy for you to trust the leadership of God in your life? He's a personal shepherd. Point two today is he is a shepherd who satisfies. The rest of verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think it's actually pretty helpful to talk about this not wanting bit. Um, When I read scripture, I like to see how it's described in other translations. It is a huge privilege to have scripture in our language. Um, It's an immense privilege to be able to have multiple translations. We recognize that. But it's the English Standard Version that says, I shall not want. The New International Version says, I lack nothing. The New Living Translation says, I have all that I need. And the message says, I don't need a thing. This is really a picture of contentment. Contentment. Do you feel content today? Do you think contentment is even possible in the world we live in now? Feels awfully tricky these days. We're surrounded by so much immediacy, advertising, fear-based narratives everywhere. It's getting harder and harder to sit still. Our attention is the great commodity of the now with companies making billions of dollars off of it by mostly telling us what we need, what new product is going to make all of our problems go away, right? Instagram really wants me to buy beauty products. Um, I have known to be influenced to do this. Um, It also wants me to buy the tonal machine. It's a workout machine every day. The tonal is with me in some form or fashion. It wants me to get that. It wants me to buy cleaning products and most recently custom orthotics. I'm in my 30s, but like, chill out, Instagram, right? Just a little bit. But I love this idea. I love asking people, like, what are the things that the internet wants you to buy, right? What products are coming at you? What is Siri telling you or the Google machine hears and brings back to you, you know? Because we all have them. So, of course, contentment would be hard for us today. I shall not want The focus on the word want here is not so much on the idea of desiring something as it is not lacking something needed. David does not mean that God shepherds us by giving us everything we want. Sometimes what we want is not best for us, even if we think it is. Sometimes what we want is not good for us, might even be straight up harmful to us. What happens to kids when they get everything that they want, right? It doesn't go well. They become insatiable. My son um, turned one. He turned one in June. I can't believe it. Very fast. Everyone told me that, but wow, that felt very fast. Um, And he is super mobile right now, like just now learning to walk. um, And he is climbing everywhere. He is getting into everything. And I wanted him to do this, right? I wanted him to walk, but my goodness, I am needing to have my head on a swivel out here. He wants to put everything in his mouth. He wants to turn on the jets and go right off the stairs. Um, He wants his little fingers in all the electrical sockets. He wants so much stuff that is not good for him. He does not have the brain space to comprehend what I comprehend, literally. (laughs) He doesn't know what I know. He doesn't see what I see. 
And we are the same way with God. Receiving everything you want isn't good for you. But our perception of what we lack can shift the way we relate to God, especially when we feel any entitlement over whatever it is we're desiring. Our unmet expectations can lead to anger, sadness, disappointment, resentment, bitterness. We have to pay attention to that. What are those unmet desires in your life? How do they drive the way you live and relate to Christ? How do they impact where you place your attention, your drive, your money, your heart? Jesus himself said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack nothing. Maybe you're a driven person. (laughs) You are goal-oriented. You love a good checklist. Maybe you are that person who completes something and then adds it to the list just to check it off. You know who you are. Yeah. But maybe you're hearing this, and this idea of contentment is creating a little bit of tension in you. Like, just be content? (laughs) So do nothing? Chase nothing? Strive for nothing? Want nothing? How is contentment different from complacency? It is. Now, I am that person who adds something to the list after I've done it, right? This is my confession right now. It is okay to have goals and desires and to have the drive to go get them. I'm right there with you, and I think the Lord loves that in us. I think he wired you and me to run and dream and participate with him. Contentment isn't complacency. It's trusting God with your unmet desires. God is a shepherd who satisfies. The rest of the verses in this psalm illustrate how the shepherd God supplies abundantly all that his trusting people need. In verse 2 and 3, it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He's a shepherd who restores and guides. Restores and guides. Again, I think the different versions here are helpful. He restores my soul is the ESV. He quiets my soul is what it says in the NIV. He renews my strength in the New Living Translation. He lets me catch my breath is what it says in the message. These are getting at the idea of rest, at rest. A rest that is more than just doing nothing, more than watching Netflix and taking a nap here. This is a soul kind of rest a spiritual renewal, a kind of restoration. The shepherd leads his sheep in these pleasant places of ease and comfort in green pastures and still waters. If we were to visit the undeveloped lands of the Bible in the Middle East, we'd realize that this picture is a little bit of an unusual one. The land is dry and arid, like a rocky set of rolling hills covered with sparse and tough grass. Water sources are few and often seasonal. 
Shepherds had to be ready to take their flocks on migrations from one source of grazing and water to another. Obviously, grass and water are the sustenance for a sheep. A good shepherd knows how and where to find them both. And he leads the hungering, thirsty sheep to them. Verse 3 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The statement paths of righteousness in verse 3 can have a weird or maybe unusual ring to our ears, but it can also mean the right path or the one that gets you where you need to go. The sheep were not left on their own devices, but led by God himself to take the correct path to get them where they need to go. That's the path of righteousness. So here in this psalm, we're about to go from a life that seems chill and easy by the river (laughs) to a description of some pretty fearful, intense threat. If you imagine journeying in search of places to graze, a flock would have to pass through deep and rugged wadi, which were these valley ravines, like dry stream beds, um, cut through semi-desert hills in Arabic regions. I got to go to Israel in 2019 with Timberline, um, and we got to travel through some of these wadis. I brought a picture. It's not the best, but it's a little helpful. There's a monastery that's cut into the side of this canyon, um, but you can see here the steep sides of the canyon and get a little picture of what a wadi might look like. Oh, yeah, there's the monastery. The air at the bottom of a wadi is heavy. There's not grass. um, There's no water. There can be oppressive heat. So it naturally would have been a struggle to travel through them. In the next verse, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The next point today is he is a shepherd who comforts in the midst of threat. He comforts in the midst of threat. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death is an extreme image. (laughs) There's evidence in the Hebrew for the use of the hyperbolic word constructions here to elicit the most extreme. The Hebrew word is samawet, which we see nearly 20 times in the Old Testament. It's a combination of two words, sel, meaning meaning shadow, and mawet, meaning death. Together, these words were to express the superlative, something like the shadow of all shadows, or the deepest shadow, as dark as death, the darkest valley. It's the shadow of death. Here in Psalm 23, it's purposely used to emphasize extreme danger and extreme threat. It is a strong word. What kind of dark valleys are you walking through right now? For some of you, you might quickly confine things that feel incredibly dark and heavy, where the shadow of death feels like an appropriate way to describe them. Or maybe you have that in your history. You think of things where that felt true, maybe. In the midst of oppressive and threatening setting, David, the sheep, is unafraid. He says, I will fear no evil. Because he fears God, he doesn't need to fear anything else. There are clearly very real reasons to fear, but it seems the presence of God eclipses the fear. I will fear no evil, not on my own strength, not on working hard, putting some positive mantras into the mix. 
It's the presence of God in the midst of that that somehow changes everything. Even in the writing here, the shepherd is in a person-to-person address, no longer ahead but alongside to escort his sheep. The presence of God in the midst of it all changes everything. He's a shepherd who comforts in the midst of threat. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff are two tools for shepherds to guide and protect. The staff was like a walking stick, support for walking, and it was also used to keep the sheep moving in the right direction. They would use it to correct them, pushing them, getting their attention, forcing them back into alignment with where they needed to be going, which is like discipline. We don't like to be disciplined, but discipline is security. Discipline is security. Discipline is loving. You discipline those you love. The rod was a shorter thing. It would go around the waist of the shepherd. It was entirely used as a weapon to strike heavy blows against an attacking enemy, which is like an animal most of the time. And there is comfort that comes from both of these, a reassurance of guidance and protection from danger. He comforts in the midst of threat. Now in verse 5, there's a little bit of transition. He goes from the role of a shepherd to the role of a host, God does. But the shepherd heart is the same. It says this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The next point is he is a shepherd who protects and provides. He prepares a table before me. To eat and drink at someone's table was more than visiting in this time. It was a sacred bond of mutual loyalty. This culture was very, very serious about hospitality. They were very serious about caring for wanderers. So if someone's being pursued by enemies and they came under your tent, um, into your house, they sat at your table, they were under your protection and care. It was part of the law that if someone ran into the temple and they claimed sanctuary, they were protected. That's some of what's happening here in this picture. This is not like how our culture is. It is so much more than an acquaintance who's coming over for dinner after a couple hours, they leave. (laughs) No. There's this bond. There's this loyalty. It is a living with. And here it happens in the presence of enemies, in the presence of trouble and danger, which is not beautiful imagery. To imagine running and desperate, pursued by enemies, being brought into God's house to sit at his table, to be cared for by the best host who can make you feel at home, safe, protected. That's good hospitality right there. I really want you to hear me here. Being in and belonging to Christ does not mean that our troubles, um, our cares, our pains, the dangers of this world are simply removed from us. In the midst of my enemies, the troubles, cares, stress, anxiety, danger, fears, God sets a table before me, and he invites me to be with him 
again? How quick are you in the midst of stress or distress in any form to run to God? When the next thing comes your way that shakes you down to the core, what's your response going to be? I have found um, in times of deep sorrow or deep stress, people tend to either run away from God or run towards him. Now, there can be a desperation in those seasons um, that creates this real intimacy and nearness with God that's hard to describe. Like, you might be able to testify to this. Like, you would say, man, I never would want to do that again. (laughs) I never want to go through that, but I miss the way that God, God was near to me. I can say that for sure. Which, after all, it's a promise. God's near to the brokenhearted. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I wish I could tell you that pain will never come to you, that you will never know it, um, but you would already know. That's a lie. The world we live in is a broken place. Jesus literally said out of his mouth, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. God does not promise that we will find resolve or that all of our longings will be filled or that pain will be healed, even though he does that. He is generous He does redeem. That's not the promise. He promises that he will be with us. And to that, he is so faithful. He invites us to belong to him, to have our entire identity be built around being known and loved and delighted in by him, to share our lives with him. That is the anointing of our heads with oil. That is our cup overflowing, an abundance Abundant life in the midst of the entirety of life, in the good things, in the broken, messy things, in the mundane things. It's an assurance that we have under pressure. For the Old Testament hearers, um, Psalm 23 would be like what Romans 8, 37 to 39 is for us, which reads this, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an assurance we have under pressure. So our trust in him then, in the midst of our troubles, is more than a matter of feeling or mood. It's beyond our circumstances. To trust God while you are in the middle of your pains and your fears, while your enemies surround you, is an active trust. It's not rosy or romantic or just having a positive attitude. It is a sturdy foundation of prayer and thanksgiving, reminding yourself of God's presence and salvation. It's trust and faith. Lastly, God, our shepherd, is faithfully near. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The goodness and mercy that follows us, again, it is not all the things that we desire, we get those. Not all of our longings being filled, not pain being removed from us. No. In these verses, the terms are used to describe the relentless pursuit of us by the goodness and mercy of God. 
Surely God will pursue me relentlessly all the days of my life. Surely his goodness and mercy will follow me. We have access to this right now. As Psalm 23 says, dwelling in God's house does not mean some sort of escape. It is walking with God in the midst of our very real, gritty, messy lives. Wherever you are, whatever fear you are sitting in, whatever dark valley you are in or you will be in, I want you to remember the shepherd heart of God. He meets us in the midst of our mess. He cares for us like a good shepherd who's good at his job, like the good host who invites you to be and to rest. Remember, he knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. He knows how to feed you and protect you and guide you. And maybe some of you could use some of that right now, yeah? Let's pray together. Father, we are moved by your grace and your love for us, for the ways you delight in us and you meet us in the midst of it, that we don't have to fix ourselves up to come to you, but you meet us in the midst of our very real gritty lives. God, I pray for anyone in this room who specifically needs guidance, who needs to be led, who needs to be shepherded. God, forgive us for sometimes we're not good at that. (laughs) But right now, we express a willingness to desire to follow you. Lead us, God. We ask for that. For specific needs of guidance, would you go before us and give us wisdom and discernment? For anyone here who would say, I need rest, like that soul kind of rest, that sleep's not doing it, relaxing isn't doing it, I need the soul kind of rest. God, would you lead them in the way only that you can? For peace that goes beyond understanding, we ask for your presence right now to bring that in the way that only you can. And for anyone who feels like you are in the middle of the dark valley right now, you would say, yes, that's true. God, right now, we just pray for the assurance of your witness, for that tangible care, for that personal care that you would remind them that you are with them, but we would see it tangibly. God, for all of us, I pray that you would grow our trust, our confidence in you, that we would be dependent on you. You are a God who is good at your job. We declare that. Thank you for loving us so well. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.